Well, good morning, Hope Markham. My name is Pastor Matt. I serve up at Harvest Muskoka. Thank you for the opportunity of opening God's word with you here today. We're coming out of the Muskoka winter. Um, so for the last eight months, I've seen nothing but snow, F-150s, and plaid. It is a joy to be here with y'all today in the land of Teslas. So if you could do me a favor, can you find your way over to Matthew chapter 26, starting in the 36th verse? Now, as you find your way over there, I want to teach you something about me. Growing up, my father was, and it still is, a corporate pilot. If you're wondering what a corporate pilot is, it's a pilot who flies wealthy individuals and celebrities. Until about the age of 20, I only ever flew private. This would turn out to be a problem for me. I would grow up to not fit the tax bracket of flying private. Do you know what flying private is like? Oh, it's wonderful. First of all, you drive your car right up to the jet. Right, so I'm just traveling there, and I'm only there because my dad's the pilot. And so, you know, right beside the Jets, the McLaren, the Lamborghini, the Ferrari, and I pull up in my half-broken Kia. And I go up the stairs, and the stewardess is like, you know, good morning, Mr. King, welcome. There's $10,000 catering for four people. You're pampered, and you're catered, and I am not making a joke when I say that the toilet in the back is gold. And then I grew up and went into ministry. <laughs> and now I fly airlines. Do you know what flying airlines is like? <laughs> oh, first of all, you're in a line like cattle. You get frisked, you get searched, you finally get to your gate. And not only are they not calling you by your name, you have a number. And so you're standing at the gate and you're just anxious to get on the plane. And they're like, okay, we're now going to board military first, which I'm so supportive of. Now we would like to welcome the platinum elites, the gold platinum elites, silver platinum elites, gold members, silver members, bronze members, cubic zirconium members. Where are all these clubs coming from? And then, because I'm not in one of those clubs, I can now get like, boarded by zone. Oh. First of all, we would like to welcome everybody aboard who owns a golden retriever. Oh, that's great. Okay, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. Why is that even a thing? And then suddenly, they're going to start boarding by zones. I'm not going to tell you what seat I have, but if my zone was on the Titanic, I'm getting wet first. And then we finally board the plane. And you're crammed in there like a sardine. You get half a Coke and a bag of this weird peanut pretzel mix that I think the stewardess pre-chewed before you got on the plane. And inevitably, I'm blessed by sitting next to the guy who's now trying out natural deodorant and smells like an onion. Every time I fly on an airline, I'm like, I hate this. There is something so much more. 
for every man and woman in this room, there is something so much more waiting for you. The only reason that I got to fly private is because my father welcomed me into something that I had no access to. I want you to know that today because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are welcomed into something so much greater than anything you could ever have on your own. And as we're getting ready to enter Holy Week, where we worship Christ for his death for us, and so much more his resurrection from the grave. Jesus has welcomed you into something so much greater, and it wasn't from the comfort and convenience of Jesus Christ. It was from his sacrifice and the pain he endured out of his love and affection for you that you are welcomed into something so much greater. So what's the point of this morning? It's going to be to be in awe of the one who suffered on our behalf. In awe of the one who has welcomed us into something so much more. And so read with me Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56. Go there with me. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and he prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink of it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, and he laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and he drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. 
For all who take of the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At At the hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and with clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Hope Markham, pray with me. So Lord, as we're about to dissect this passage, God, I pray for every saint who is with me here today and every saint who is watching online. Meet us. Protect us from just understanding your word or having an academic knowledge of your word. But Lord, like what Paul says in Ephesians, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see and we may know and we may worship. Would we leave this this time together today in a posture of awe because of what we see your son do as he's victorious in darkness? Holy Spirit, meet us in this time, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to be breaking down that passage in sections. So today's sermon is called Victorious in Darkness. It's seeing a hard, dark time in Christ's life and ministry and watching him victoriously and powerfully work through it. And my first point is this. He's victorious in darkness with community. Look at verses 36 with me. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples... Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. What a beautiful passage and insight into Christ's humanity right now. Of the synoptic gospels of the New Testament, each account has Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus, at this point in the Garden of Gethsemane, is troubled to the point of death. The gospel of Mark says that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is greatly distressed. Luke says, in agony, Christ's sweat became like great drops of blood falling down. What a beautiful glimpse into the humanity of Jesus at this point. And the perfect son of God is finding himself on a dark night in a dark moment knowing I am about to be betrayed. I am about to be beaten. I am about to be mocked. I am about to be paraded in front of the masses, in front of crowds that hate me, to ultimately be put to death 
wearing the full weight of a holy wrath of God towards the sins of mankind. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Could you imagine the weight of knowing what is ahead? And this weight, it's, it's, it's taking place in Christ. It's, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's physical weight on Christ. And here we have a beautiful display of how Christ is working in and through it. Jesus acknowledges the pain is real. And one of his first responses is, bring community close. So he takes his closest three, James, Peter, and John. And he goes to his closest three of the 12, and he goes, come close and watch with me. Jesus is being intentional in everything that he is doing. On a dark night, on a hard time, he's bringing community close. Good pause point here. What's your community? That when trouble, death, distress, and sorrow come in creeping on your soul, who do you welcome close? If it's fitting for Christ to do it, it's going to be fitting for us to be able to do it. But let's face it, I'll out myself in front of everybody. As Christians, often in the dark, hard moments, shame is always telling us withdraw, pull back, look the part. Sometimes we like to dismiss or distract the pain. Sometimes we're like, oh, I should be further along in this Christian walk that I shouldn't be struggling with this. Yet Christ here isn't dismissing, isn't belittling it. Christ is beautifully staring down the very thing that is wearing on him. And Christ is showing us here intentionally, when the darkness hits, bring close those who are trusted and disclose the state of your heart to them. My heart is sorrowful to the point of death. I am in agony. Come close and watch with me. Christ is victorious in the darkness with community. But we also see here, point number two, Christ is victorious in the darkness through prayer. Isn't it like, isn't it interesting if you've been a Christian for a while Prayer is like the most powerful thing, but it's also one of the things that you can so easily dismiss in your practice or your disciplines in your Christian life. Oh, I gotta pray about it. Gotta pray about it. Gotta pray about it. Here we're about to see Christ pray about it, and let's break down his prayer to the Father. Look at with me verse 39. Deal? And going a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now again for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink of it, your will be done. 
And again he came and he found them sleeping, and for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. When things get dark and heavy, Christ is taking the, the trouble, the distress, and the agony, and he's taking it to his father. I love how raw and real Christ's prayer is. Let this pass from me. The son is saying to the father, please know, is there any other way? Please, is there any other way? Christ in his humanity knew the art of going to prayer for doing something that felt like too much in the moment. And I love how the father never rebukes the son for this prayer. If you go to Ephesians 1, chap- chapter 1, verse 4, you don't need to go there right now. There's a verse in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that goes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Pause with me for a second. Think of how beautiful the prayer Christ is giving the father in the Garden of Gethsemane, considering Ephesians. Before the foundation of the world, Christ Jesus chose Matt and chose you through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That means that was a pre-creation Trinity discussion. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ is re-engaging a pre-creation discussion going, hey, Father, remember that prayer that we, we, we agreed before creation that about what I was going to do at the cross and how I was going to conquer the grave? Yes, is there any other way? Remember that? Remember, like, I can't even describe this perfectly because I'm a being bound by time. I don't even know how to describe eternity well. Maybe he should have taken another year of seminary. But here, he's going, hey, remember that pre-creation discussion? Yeah, live in the moment, Garden of Gethsemane. Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And I love it because how many times do you see Christ pray this prayer? It's not once. It's not twice. It's three times. Jesus is victorious in darkness in prayer because he keeps going under the umbrella of the Father. Now, if any of you were alive in the 90s, do you remember infomercials before like everything was electronic? You guys remember the ab shocker? <laughs> the ab shocker was this amazing infomercial where it has this jacked guy on a couch. And he's just eating popcorn, and he has this device strapped to his stomach, and it shocks, it shocks your abs so that you can get a six-pack without even having to get off the couch. I watched that infomercial. I was like, amen, I'm on speed dial right now. And so really what the ab shocker was all about was this. Here's power without discipline. Here's results without discipline. Can I tell you something? Sometimes I'm spiritually slothful. And I love what I call ab shocker prayers. Lord, I don't want to try. Lord, I really don't care. My will, Father, not yours. And Christ is showing us the antithesis of an ab shocker prayer. Prayer. 
he is going before the Father again, and he's disciplining his mind. He's disciplining his soul before the Father. Not my will, yours once. Not my will, yours twice. Not my will, yours three times. Christ is showing here that prayer isn't just some magic silver bullet. I think the Father's greatest desire in our prayer life is not symptom alleviation, it's intimacy with you. In Gethsemane, though hard and dark, was a chance for Christ to uniquely know and come to the Father in that moment. And there was a God-ordained grace that the Father gave the Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love it because if you look at Luke's account of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the 22nd chapter, 44th verse, it's not on the first prayer, but the ones following it says, Jesus, in agony, prayed more earnestly. As the weight and urgency is increasing, It's fueling him to go to the Father and come under the umbrella of the Father. So Jesus takes the darkness, the hard moments of Gethsemane, and he's victorious because he's going to community and he's going to prayer. Can I ask you flat out, what do you like to take your dark moments to? What do you like to take the hard moments moments to because caution what you take that darkness to will either add power to you in the darkness or it will add power to the darkness one more time careful what you take the hard dark moments to it'll either add power to you in the dark moments or it will add power to the darkness. And Jesus at this moment is perfectly disciplining himself and he's taking it to the Father. Once, twice, three times. And so we see Christ is victorious in the darkness with community. We see Christ is victorious in the darkness with prayer. But here we see the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ because he's victorious in the darkness when everything around him feels failing. Look at verses 46 with me. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Judas at once and he said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and he, they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of the 12 who were with him, um, with Jesus, stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put back your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus, 
his closest community, at one of his times of greatest needs, fails him three separate times. The three closest to him fail him. And now enters Judas, one of his disciples, and he betrays them. If you look at verse 47, from the chief priests and the elders of the people, community leaders are failing Jesus. Religious leaders are equally failing him. The disciples are falling short. There is not an earthly system or person that is not failing or openly betraying Jesus at this point. You have an empathetic high priest that knows what it's like for systems and people to fail him. And if, and inevitably when they fail, it never threatened the power that the father was willing to give the son. His closest community only contributes naps, betrayal, counterproductive actions with a sword, and then the climax is found in verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. At this moment, Christ is completely abandoned by his closest, and the only ones who are still there are the very ones that are about to mock, beat, and execute him. Every obedient action of Jesus Christ in this passage is yoked with all the peripheral failing him. If Christ did not have that time with the Father, who did not fail him, how different would this passage have looked? I think it can often be said that the cross was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are elements in hard times, by the way, that are reserved between God and us alone. There are things that nobody can carry for me. There are certain disciplines that I have to go to my God for. Look at the life of Corey Ten Boom. Beautiful woman, Holocaust survivor. She learned in a concentration camp that her family was killed in, that there's a place between her and her God no swastika could ever touch. I do the care and counseling ministry at Harvest Muskoka. And I walk with a lot of people in a lot of hard, dark situations. I remember walking with a parent who lost a child. And I remember the words of this father that I'll never forget. There are things that I'm daily walking out that nobody can carry for me. It's between me and my God alone. Not once does Christ use the failures of others as an excuse to opt out of obedience? Jesus is showing us the power of unwavering obedience, even when everything around him feels crashing. And I love this because John Piper talks about how God loves it when all the odds are stacked against him because that's how he shows he is God. And so leading into this Easter week, in this passage, we see this gentle, loving shepherd 
named Jesus Christ, who's victorious in the darkness with community, victorious in darkness with prayer, victorious in darkness when everything around him feels failing. And finally, he's victorious in darkness because there's a type of power that comes from perspective. Jesus is constantly grounding his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane with God's narrative. Not a guard's narrative. Not Judas's narrative. Not his disciples' narrative. He's constantly taking his thoughts, his affections, his desires, and he's grounding it to the words and will of the Father. Look at verse 45. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus isn't shocked about what's going on. He sees Judas rolling up, and he leans over to the other disciples. He's like, hey, watch this. This is about to happen. And then verse 50, when Jesus is talking to Judas, before Judas does anything, he comes up to him and goes, Jesus to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. What powerful words of Jesus in that moment. Because Jesus is essentially saying to the one who's about to betray him, Hey, Judas, do what my father's deemed. Judas, you think you're about to hand me over and betray me. All you're doing is a small role in the greatest act creation will ever witness. Judas is but a small tool in the hands of a sovereign God to do the most beautiful thing we've ever witnessed. Christ knew the power of making the hardest things of life, the deserts, the Gethsemanes, the Judases, the Golgothas. And he knew that those were not his God. The Father was his God who was with him as he went through all of them. Verses 53 through 54, look at it with me. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be also? 56 continues. All of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Look how victorious Christ is in these verses. He is anchored into mission. His power is coming from a perspective that goes over his environment and is going over his experiences. Not for a second is Christ a victim. Yes, he is victimized. But here, Christ always had the power over this scenario. And Jesus knew what was playing out in the temporary was only fulfilling that which is eternal. What peace in that statement. Jesus knew what was playing out in the temporary was only fulfilling that which is eternal. The guards weren't ultimate. This holy week, Judas isn't the point. 
the mob isn't the point. And Jesus knew his mission. Because as they're beating him, as they're mocking him, as they're getting ready to crucify him, Christ is willing his mind to the narration of the Father. Jesus knew who he was and what he was called to do. And he refused to be thrown off of that mission or that narrative. And maybe you're here today and you're like, who is Jesus? What is his narrative? What is his purpose? Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. In chapter 2, 9 through 10 in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste your death for you so that you could taste the life that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make the payment for sins of people. This is what he was anchored into Jesus Christ knew he, who he was, the Son of God, and he knew what he was called to do, to bear the full weight of Matt King and your sins on a cross. Three days later, to raise from the grave, to have victory over sin and victory over the grave so that he could offer Matt King a new name and a new life for all of eternity. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was called into. And he made the temporary be a servant to his eternal plan. Jesus Christ was victorious in the darkness with community. He was victorious in the darkness in prayer. He was victorious in the darkness when everything felt like it was failing him. He was victorious in darkness with a power that comes from perspective. And he desires a relationship with you. As the worship team comes up, we see the beautiful nature of Jesus Christ. Christ's ministry was loaded with power and hard, dark moments. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as we prepare for Easter, he was perfectly victorious because Christ's temptation in the desert was dry, but it didn't destroy. Christ's Gethsemane was agonizing, but it was anchoring. Christ's betrayal from Judas was painful, but it only fell into God's plan. And for the glory of the Lord and restoration in our lives to God, 
Christ humbly subjected himself to a heat of a desert, the loneliness of a Gethsemane, and the betrayal of some of his closest. And he did it victoriously and perfectly so that you could call him father and he could call you daughter and son. And the worst response to this news is going to be apathy. We cannot hear this news and do nothing with it. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then let this truth stir awe, wonder, and worship in you. And if you're here today, online or in person, and you do not know Christ, I want you to know, like that song that, song that we just sang before I came up, when Jesus Christ says, it is finished, this has been done and accomplished so that no matter what you have done and no matter what has been done to you, there is a way for you because of Easter to call out to the Lord and to know him as Lord and Savior. Pray with me, Hope Markham. So Jesus, we come before you right now, preparing for Easter and seeing even in the hardest, darkest moments leading up to your crucifixion, Jesus, you were perfect. You didn't waver once. And you are only ever victorious. Thank you that in your grace, you left the comforts and you left the glories of heaven to come to a Genesis 3 broken world with broken people and in your love and affection for them, you subjected yourself to humiliation and beating and crucifixion. And you proved yourself victorious over the, over the desert, over the Gethsemane, over the Golgotha, over sin and over the grave. And Lord, this week going into Easter, we celebrate that both in the lows and in the highs, there is none like you. You are perfect, and we join with all the anthem of the angels right now in saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's in his name and blood that we pray. Amen.